Hello everyone, I'm your host Chloe, and I'd like to thank you for joining me for this episode of Clear Skies. Today we're going to be discussing a constellation you may have never heard of, Auriga. Auriga, or the Charioteer, is a pretty simple and bright constellation. Since this constellation is so simple, this might be a shorter episode, or maybe not. I don't really know since there's a lot of mythology surrounding this one, so hopefully you like that section. But here's how the episode's going to go. We'll discuss the general shape of the constellation and how to find it, the specific stars and deep sky objects within its boundaries, and then we'll go through the mythology and history in various cultures. Again, thank you so much for joining me. I seriously appreciate each and every one of you. All right, so let's ready our horses and go see about a charioteer. Auriga, or the charioteer, is visible from November to March. It is highest in the sky in December, but its deep sky objects are easiest to see in February. Now this is the third of our six constellations which form the bright winter circle. This constellation is visible from 90 to negative 44 degrees latitude, and above 44 degrees latitude it appears to be circumpolar, as in it appears to rotate around the celestial north pole. Auriga is a fairly large constellation, the 21st in size overall. It's roughly half the size of the largest constellation, Hydra. This constellation has 10 named stars and 4 notable deep sky objects. Now, this is a fairly simple one to find. It's directly above the large V of Taurus, and so you can start from the line of 3 stars that comprise Orion's belt. You draw a straight line through those stars, extend that line upward, and you will shortly find the red star signifying the eye of Taurus. Just above that, you will see another bright star. This is Capella, and you are now in Auriga. Auriga simply looks like a pentagon or a small house. I always look at this pentagon as his head, two shoulders, and two knees, but that's not exactly official. The traditional setup of this constellation has one star for his head, two for his arms, and one for his foot. Capella would be his left shoulder or arm, in which he is historically shown as cradling a goat. Um, his mythologies do not mention a goat, so it's not clear where this came from, but we'll discuss that more in depth later in the episode. Now, if you'd like to see how this whole situation looks, we have star maps, drawings, and photographs of everything discussed today on the website at clearskieswithchloe.com, which is also linked in the show notes. So this constellation has a few unusual features, and though it's a simple and lesser known constellation, it is still a good one to know. It's easy to find, and it can help you find other important constellations such as Gemini for y'all born in late May or June. As previously noted, this constellation has 10 named stars and 4 deep sky objects, and several of the dimmer stars have known exoplanets. So we're going to discuss a few of the brightest stars, and then quickly cover all 4 of the deep sky objects. The brightest star in this constellation is Capella, which is the 6th brightest star in the night sky overall. Its name refers to Goat Star, or She-Goat, stemming from a mythological connection to goats with this constellation. This star is positioned at Capella's left arm or shoulder, which is the one holding the goat. Now, this star is really close to us, at only 43 light years away, 
and it's actually an unusual multiple star system. This system consists of four stars with two binary pairs each. This first pair is two large yellow giants which are very close to each other in orbit. So close, in fact, that they were unable to be resolved in a telescope. Instead, that was first done through interferometry and then later by the Hubble telescope. This pair puts out about 160 times the luminosity of our sun, with 90 times from the primary and 70 times from the secondary star. The proper motion of this pair of stars tell us that it may be associated with the Hyades star cluster, which we discussed on the last episode concerning Taurus. These two are listed as variable stars due to the massive cellar spots, which are like sunspots, which cause the overall luminosity of the stars to vary as they rotate. These stars are approximately 600 million years old, and they will eventually become red giants. They're not quite large enough to supernova, and instead they will form planet-sized white dwarfs and expel their outer layers as planetary nebula. This is the type of nebula that we discussed last week, the Owl Nebula. The second set is a small, cool pair of red dwarfs, which are about one light year away from the first pair. These are of course much dimmer, and while they're about half the size of our sun, they shine at about 1 20th the brightness of our sun due to their low temperature. These two stars have a 300 year revolution as a binary, which is very long. <laughs> Capella, as a single star that we see, was once the brightest star in the night sky around 210 to 160,000 years ago. It came really close to our solar system within 28 light years, yet it was still considerably fainter than Sirius and Canis Major is today. This was also the first object outside of our solar system which was measured using interferometry. Interferometry is a technique in which you use many small dishes to collect data and combine that information to create sharp images, rather than using one gigantic telescope. It's often used for radio astronomy. Since radio waves are so much longer, you would have to use a gigantic telescope. And instead, you can just use a bunch of small ones. Now, the second brightest star is Minkerlina. <laughs> I'm not sure how you say that, but that's what I'm going with. This is another variable binary whose name stems from the Arabic for shoulder of the charioteer or shoulder of the rain holder. This star is, of course, point. Um, this star is, of course, positioned at Auriga's right shoulder. The star system is fairly close at 81 light years away, and it's comprised of two white stars, which are an eclipsing binary, and one red dwarf, which is quite a bit removed from the white pair. These white stars are each about 48 times as luminous as our sun, so together they're 95 times brighter. They have a partial eclipse every four days and are in a very tight orbit with one another. They're so close together that they are no longer round, being pulled and misshapen by the gravitational pull between them. Minkarlina will actually be the brightest star in our sky in about 990,000 years. Now, so far, we have been discussing constellations which lie pretty close to the Milky Way. Due to this proximity, these constellations tend to have several nebulae and other deep sky objects within their borders. 
Auriga is no exception, and we have three star clusters and one nebula to discuss. Now, the three star clusters are all fairly similar and can be seen with a pair of binoculars or a telescope. M36 is the smallest of the three, with only about 60 stars. 40 of these can be seen without professional instruments. These stars are about 4,100 light years away and were first discovered in the 1600s by an Italian astronomer and added to the Messier catalog in 1764. This cluster resembles the Pleiades in that it has a lot of white young stars, but it's too distant to be apparent in our night sky. M37 is a large cluster with around 500 stars and is also around 4,000 light years away. This is the densest cluster in its constellation and has been described as a virtual cloud of glittering stars by Robert Burnham Jr. and strewn with sparkling gold dust by Charles Piazzi Smith. While M36 has a lot of young white and blue stars, this cluster is older at about 300 million years old. I don't know about you, but those descriptions make me definitely want to get out a telescope and see what is going on in M37, and it sounds beautiful. Now, the last one, M38, is the least concentrated with about 100 stars total. This cluster is cross-shaped when seen through a telescope, and it's a similar distance, about 4,200 light years away. Now, right next to M38, but much closer, at only 1,500 light years away, is the nebula called the Flaming Star Nebula. This is an emission or reflection nebula surrounding one of Auriga's dimmer stars. Now, an emission nebula is a cloud of gas which has been ionized by the energy from a nearby star and emits different wavelengths of light. A reflection nebula is one where the energy from nearby stars is insufficient to ionize the gases, but it is enough to scatter and make the dust of the nebula visible. This nebula has a magnitude of positive 6, which is basically the dimmest we can see with the naked eye. So even though it's hard to see, through a telescope it is very pretty. So you can find images of this nebula as well as each of the star clusters we just discussed on the blog at clearskieswithchloe.com, which is also linked below in the show notes. Now it's also worth noting that there is one meteor shower associated with this constellation, which occurs from late August through early September. This shower has an annual maximum of 7 to 9 meteors per hour, which is not that fantastic. But every 70 years, it does give us quite a show, called an outburst, with around 400 meteors per hour at its peak. The last time this was seen was in 2007, and I'm sorry to say that I did not get to see that. <laughs> um... This meteor shower originates from the comet Kais, a long-period comet which takes about 2,000 years to orbit the sun. We cross the densest portion of its dust trail about every 70 years, which leads to the increase in meteors. The next outburst will be around 2077, so if we're still around and the world hasn't ended yet, I will be on the lookout for that. <laughs> So now it's time to discuss some of the mythology surrounding this constellation. 
Even though to us, it's one of the lesser known constellations, it has a lot of mythology and a lot of importance in other cultures throughout history. I think mainly because it's so bright and so recognizable. Again, all the ones that we've been discussing are very bright, easy to find, big constellations. So people in the past are going to have a lot to say about them. So we're going to start with the first record of this constellation, which was in Mesopotamia. So they saw it as representing a scimitar or a crook. The crook of Origa stood for a shepherd or a goat herd, and it was formed from most of the modern constellation. All of the bright stars except for Alnoth were included, which they included Alnoth with Taurus, which is how we see it today as well. Later in the same region, Bedouin astronomers saw the constellations as groups of animals with each star representing a single animal. Origa represented a herd of goats. Unfortunately, we don't have any stories or myths from that time, at least not any that I could find, which tell us why Origa was associated with goats, but that association carries on and we'll see that that was discussed in the Greek myths as well. Actually, let's go ahead and hop over to Greece. And in Greece, there were about five myths about this constellation, two of which associate it with goats and three of which don't at all. So we're going to start with the goat myths. So these are specific to Capella, the brightest star in Origa. Capella is seen either as Origa's left shoulder or, more frequently, as the body of a goat. According to Greek mythologist, this she-goat was Almothea, who suckled the infant Zeus on the island of Crete. She was placed among the stars as a sign of gratitude, along with the two kids she had at the time, which are represented by Ada and Zeta Origa. These kids are known by the Greek Heidi and are said to be at the charioteer's left elbow or wrist. So in a lot of images, you will see Origa with one large goat at his left shoulder and two smaller goats held in his left arm. Now, an alternative story, which is quite a bit darker, um, states that Almothea is actually the nymph that owned the goat. This goat was said to be so ugly that it frightened the titans that ruled the earth at the time. When Zeus grew up, he challenged the titans and sought the advice of an oracle. This oracle advised him to skin this ugly goat and make a cloak out of its hide, the back of which resembled a gorgon. Zeus did this. This hideous goat skin formed the aegis of Zeus, with aegis literally meaning goat skin, but later was used to refer to several protective shields and skins with mystical protective properties. Now, this Aegis worked, protecting Zeus and scaring his enemies. So after his victory, he covered the bones of the goat with normal-looking skin, which seems so rude, and transformed it into the star Capella. Some early writers wrote of the goat and the kids as a separate constellation from Origa, but since the time of Ptolemy, they have been smushed together into one awkward image. There's literally no mythology or story or legend or anything else to explain why in the world the charioteer is holding all of these goats. But maybe he's just like me and he likes goats. He wanted some friends up there in the sky. I don't know. But what you have is a charioteer holding three goats. So that's fine. So now... We're going to go ahead and discuss the Greek myth of him as a charioteer. 
So these are kind of um, more traditional Greek myths, and as always, they're pretty dark. A lot of weird familial relationships happening. So this first one is probably the most popular Greek myth, which revolves around King Erichthonius of Athens. He was son of the god of fire, Hephaestus, who was also known by his Roman name Vulcan. Now, Vulcan was too busy being like a smith and a god and had Athena raise his child. So once he was grown, Erichthonius devoted an entire festival to her. As he was growing up, Athena taught him many skills, including how to tame horses. So he became the first person to harness four horses to a chariot as an homage to the four-horse chariot of the sun. Zeus admired this and placed him among the stars where he is depicted as standing at the reins of his chariot, which he used to win many games and races. Now, this second Greek myth is kind of strange. Um, so it revolves around a guy named Hippolytus, the son of Theseus, whose stepmother, Phaedra, fell in love with him. He rejected her advances and she hung herself in despair. Now the dad, Theseus, for some reason blamed Hippolytus for this and banished him from Athens. As Hippolytus drove away, his chariot was wrecked, killing him. Asclepius, the healer, brought him back to life, but this angered Hades, who was annoyed at losing a soul, and so Hades requested that Zeus kill the healer, which he did. And somewhere in all this mess, Hippolytus ended up being transferred to the heavens as Origa. <laughs> Don't ask me how. Now, the last Greek myth is both the most complex and also, I guess, like the saddest. <laughs> so this revolves around a guy named Myrtilus, who was the charioteer for King Onomaus of Pisa and who was also the son of the god Hermes. Now, this king had a beautiful daughter named Hippodamia, who he did not want to let marry. So the king challenged each of her suitors to a death or glory chariot race. The suitor would take the daughter in their chariot, but if the king caught them before they reached Corinth, he would behead them. Now, the king had the swiftest chariot in Greece, which was skillfully driven by Myrtilus, so no man had survived. A dozen had already been killed when the handsome suitor Polyps came to try. Hippodamia fell in love with him immediately, I'm guessing he was hot, and begged Myrtilus to betray her father and allow Polyps to win the race. Myrtilus was secretly in love with the princess as well, and he agreed to help. He tampered with the pins holding the king's chariot's wheels, and so during the race, the wheels fell off. The king was thrown from the chariot and killed. Now, the princess was now in the company of these two men, both of which were, you know, wanting to marry her. So this was kind of awkward, and Polyps solved this by unceremoniously casting Myrtilus into the sea, where he cursed the house of Polyps until he drowned. <laughs> After his death, Hermes put the image of his son into the sky as Origa. Julius Caesar was known to support this version, and he's quoted as saying, You will observe that he has no chariot, and his reins broken, is sorrowful, grieving that Hippodamia has been taken away by the treachery of Polyps. So, that's pretty sad. 
So as you can see, the Greek myths are split between ones that associate certain stars with goats and then ones that associate the entire constellation with a charioteer. So it's kind of weird. But we have stories from other parts of the world to discuss as well. So in South America, we do have a pretty fun one from Brazil. Um, the Bororo people used several modern-day constellations to create a giant caiman, which is a close relative of the alligator. These animals are super common in, um, in the rainforest, so of course they would use it as one of their constellations. So the way this worked was the southern stars of Auriga represent the animal's tail, like the end of the tail. The eastern portion of Taurus formed the middle and base of the trail, Orion represented the animal's body, and Lepus formed the caiman's head. Another fun animal one comes from the Aboriginal people of Victoria, Australia. They referred to Capella. <laughs> they referred to Capella as a kangaroo, which was pursued and killed by the twin stars, which we now know as Pollux and Castor of Gemini. If there's like a story surrounding this hunting, then I couldn't find it but still pretty cool that it's a kangaroo. Now, the Inuit people referred to a set of stars as the collarbones, which consisted of the two brightest stars of Auriga, so Capella and Beta Auriga, and the two brightest stars of Gemini, Castor and Pollux. This constellation, the collarbones, signaled that another constellation would soon rise. This second constellation was made out of the three brightest stars of Aquila, and it marked the dawn following the winter solstice. So it marked an important agricultural moment. Now due to this, both of these constellations had great importance and were used for both navigation and timekeeping at night. Now again, this last one is not a story, but it is kind of cool. In Hawaii, the name of Capella translates to star wreath, and they formed an asterism, which we now refer to as the winter circle. So they had the same asterism we do with a bright star in Auriga, Taurus, Orion, Canis Minor and Major, and Gemini. Um, but they called it the Star Wreath, which I think sounds cooler and I might just start using it. <laughs> So that's all that I have for you guys on this episode. Um, I truly hope that you've learned something new today and that now you might recognize this beautiful constellation. You know, if you are enjoying Clear Skies, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts as that is the absolute best way to help us reach new listeners. Please also share this podcast with absolutely everyone that you know and make sure you're subscribed so you will get each episode directly to your feed. All of our resources, photographs, and maps are located on this episode's page at clearskieswithchloe.com. You can also reach out to me directly on Instagram at clearskieswithchloe. I would love to hear your thoughts, suggestions, opinions, questions, anecdotes, anything and everything that you would like to share. We will be doing varied astronomy topics as well, so if there are any topics you'd like us to cover, definitely please let me know. Again, thank you so much for joining me and wishing you clear skies ahead. Clear Sky is written and edited by me, Chloe, but it is also quality and fact-checked by fellow astronomer and my best friend Skylar Self and by professional nerd Robbie Hunt.